Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Please give a very warm welcome to Stephen Burkhoff. Good evening, everybody. Very That's nice to see such a large crowd here tonight. Very flattered that you should all turn up for this. So, gentlemen, now we'll carry on. Thank you very much, Mr. Berkhoff. In a very small way. Until I read My Life in Food by Stephen Berkhoff, I actually thought that Stephen dined on the livers of theater critics. <laughs> served up with fava beans and a little light Chianti. But it turns out that he's something of a, of a gourmet. And what struck me reading the book, and I would say, don't read it when you are feeling hungry, because you'll feel even hungrier by the end of it. Because in marvelously evocative language, Stephen takes us into his particularly culinary experiences in a most wonderfully sensual way. It seems to me that eating is like your theater in many ways, Stephen, is a very sensual experience for you. Oh, it is. You know, I think food is very much like the theater. And um, in the theater, you have your first course, which is maybe the hors d'oeuvre, which is the first act. And then the entree, which is the second act. And if you like, if you feel like the dessert, it could be the third. So there are, there are connections between theater and food, which are very palpable. And um, of course, food used to be more connected with the theater because <clears throat> in the early days of the British and the London theater, uh, the markets were actually established by the theaters because the theater would go on all day long and there would be a market nearby for people to gather their food together and eat during the performance. And uh, if you see the markets of Berwick Street, which is in Shaftesbury Avenue in London, which served all the theatres from the, you know, the Gilgut Theatre, the Lyric Theatre and all the theatres. And of course in Covent Garden, the, the big market uh, gradually developed and grew because of the theatres, the Great Theatre Royal in Covent Garden and the Lyceum Theatre. So food has always been connected with the theatre, which is kind of strange. It is way strange because now there is very little connection with the theatre for food. It's now become a kind of the area of the cinema. So in the cinema, people take all their food and popcorn and sausages oh and drinks and Coca-Cola. And so it's so different. The theatre has become a much more rarefied. Uh, whereas it used to be a kind of a little bit more kind of more democratic, more kind of uh, functional place where you'd go in and eat and, you know, and um, enjoy the play and be continuing to enjoy your food. But now it's very, very different. And the theatre, in a way, may become too hallowed. Because now, in the theatre, when you go in, <clears throat> you're expected to be absolutely silent, which is very, very good. And um, when the curtain goes up, and that's one of the most marvelous things about the theater, is that moment when the curtain goes up, and there is this incredible silence, and it's a silence of expectation, because people want to get from the theater a sense of total involvement and a feeling that they can suspend their present reality and enter into it 
but years ago they didn't. They wanted to look at it, comment, even answer back. But now they have this sense of awe about the theatre. And as I say, when the curtain rises, it's this wonderful silence. And if anybody in the audience is just like opening a little suite, and you hear a little kind of and you somebody nearby will go and they kind of and it's like a kind of violation. So now food has gone into the cinema, so it's taking the, a different feeling. Mm -hmm. And though I'm not kind of trying to be patronizing about the cinema, mm -hmm. it's very different because when the lights go down in the cinema, what you hear is something quite different. It's something like, hello, yeah, I'm in the movie. So it's, it's transferred, it's become raw. And so, but food was always connected with it. And um, it's something that, that has been lost, mm. of course, but there is that strong sense that theater is like food and um, there are so many connections. And one of them, of course, is your connection with the stage and what you mm. see. Then after the theater, you go to a restaurant and then discuss what you've seen. And so very often in London, of course, you go to the theatre and then you book a table somewhere in the vicinity, the Ivy or, or Joe Allen's or wherever you go. And, and you sit and you discuss and you debate what you've seen so that the theatre, again, works in conjunction with food. It normally goes together. And that's what's quite marvellous about the London theatre, that you do that. If, you know, you perform this ritual and you go out afterwards, where in America <clears throat> they don't quite have the same amount of theatre, so food itself has become the theatre, which is a shame. So they book tables in restaurants for six or ten or twelve and they eat and talk and chat and shout and scream and the food becomes the acts of the theater has become the kind of the the content which is a shame because they should be uh, kind of in a way respecting each other part of each other <laughs> well it seems to me too that a lot of your favorite foods are associated with your boyhood growing up in the east end of london that it's yes. a lot of it is almost proustian certainly nostalgic tell us about your your the delis of your childhood and the favorite dishes that your mother would cook for you well yes i mean <clears throat> I, I wrote the book partly because um I, I wanted to recall those moments and those times because food is very much a metaphor for the periods of time where you grew, you developed, you went out into the world, your association with other people. And um, my mother's uh, food was very, very simple, very basic, very kind of earnest food. And it was the simplest food that I liked, and uh, which I appreciated. And um, I fell in love with certain very, very simple dishes. I could read, I mean, for example, certain things like a tomato mm. became for me something very special. So maybe just for a moment, I wouldn't know without hoping to bore you to death, just to um, talk briefly about some, some of the kind of dishes or foods that I liked. So I don't know if the sound is, uh, is appropriate. Is it okay? Yeah, I think fine. <clears throat> so maybe I'll just read a little bit about uh, something so simple as a tomato. Well, it's such a comparatively innocent, rotund fruit, red and glowing in its abundant glory, 
blushing with rude health, silky to the touch, firm and almost bursting with joyous anticipation of being bitten and releasing its juicy promises. A jewel of a plant, also known more eagerly as Lycopersicum esculentum, whose origin began in the steamy forests of South America, known also as the love apple, since it resembles a human heart. Its odor, when natural, is of earthiness and grassy pungency, weighty with its liquid treasure packed within a delicate membrane, sometimes bulging out as if it could not contain its ontological joy into waves of flirtatious cheekiness, exulting in the sheer pleasure of being gushing into your mouth as you tear it open with your teeth as if it had been waiting and living for the moment of divine release practically exploding onto your tongue so that's what I <laughs> thank you and that's what I felt that tomato had such a, a variety it was such a kind of protean fruit that mm. was able to give to all other dishes, you know, a kind of modifying kind of influence on the kind of more tarty, more kind of uh, bitter dishes, the tomato. So I wrote, of course, that's just an excerpt. But my mother's food, uh, having come, <coughs> my grandparents, of course, having come from Romania and Russia, the food was different. I mean, she brought over from her mother, of course, more exotic dishes. And exotic in a very simple way, <coughs> they weren't gourmandizing, they were very basic. Because when she, where she came from, <coughs> in, um, you know, mid-Europe, mid um, times were very difficult for the people, and particularly for my mother's race, being Jewish, and people tended to live a lot of the time in ghettos. <coughs> and it was difficult to get certain foods that you needed. And, um, and these, so the foods that you could get, you would preserve, so that if you could uh, afford to buy them when they were plentiful in the summer, so you'd pick all the cucumbers and, or the beetroots or the peppers or tomatoes. But this came from poverty. In a way, um, pain is very much an element of the Jewish race. Food often is based and stimulated by the pain of deprivation. So the beet, which is under the earth, the cheapest kind of vegetable, was turned into the magnificent borscht with this extraordinary color, this amazing flavor. And so many of the dishes that are revered, if you like, in the Jewish race and in delicatessens are foods that actually came from deprivation not from indulgence, not from gourmandizing, but from a pain. And it's even started thousands of years ago when they fled <clears throat> from Egypt and they couldn't get all the loaves together and they couldn't, you know, pack their sandwich bags and all that. They just had the unleavened bread, which became the matzah. So that was based on escaping from the horror and the, as, as we believe, the enslavement over many, many centuries, and they brought the food out, which was the matzo. So even during certain periods called the Passover, <clears throat> they celebrate the actual agony of that 
an incredible time by having the salt water, which represents the tears, the onion, the bitterness of enslavement, and of course, the lamb. So there's always been a sense of, you know, curiously, a sense of suffering, and that much of the food was based and developed from the cheapest food. So the most delicate food in, in Jewish kind of um, the, the culinary calendar, it comes from the, the poverty. So the most delicate food, say like the potato pancake, which we call the potato latke, is just potato, which is uh, grated, chopped with an onion, maybe one egg put in to make a few pancakes. And so the whole of the family could feed on just a few of these pancakes, but it, it costs pennies. And um, but it shows you that you don't need to really be, you know, full of the greatest, most plentiful things to, to evolve interesting food. But one of the very strange things about that is that living in ghettos had, of course, then certain kind of culinary benefits. But in Hungary, in the 18th century, and this is connected with that particular food, there was a census, and uh, the Jews who were living there were told, you must give yourselves a proper surname, because at the time, they often just had the one name. So it would be Moses, or Ben Moses, son of Moses, or Ben Abraham, son of Abraham. And they said, well, now you should choose a name so they could be more easily identified. And they didn't want the names to be the names of local people or the names, names of Gentile population. So they said, um, the names you can use can be the names of animals. And they used the names of animals. And um, whereas, of course, years ago, the, the, the animal that represented the aspiration of the Jewish race was the lion. But now, they had to choose animals, and in centuries later, they would put yellow bands to identify them. But if there were animal names, they still could be identified. And so they chose these animals. And so the animals they liked, of course, were lion. Everybody wanted to be lion, but then they ran out. You could only have 2,000 lions. So they ran out of lions, had lion, and then fox, wolf, bear, um, eagle, adler was very popular. And um, even Kafka, funnily enough, it means jackdaw. So here was jackdaw, though they came from Prague, were well, originally from uh, Germany. And so anybody you see today with these names, of fox or bear or cats, very popular cats. And, um, but nobody chose chicken, which became the kind of the god, eventually, of, of the race. They, they may have used Khan, which is hen. Now maybe that's because hen produces eggs, it's more tolerable. So they had these names. Now what is odd is that of course, through years of history, the lion is the kind of the lion of Judah that was the kind of the flag that they would wave as a source. This is what they would aspire to, but of course couldn't. So they had the names of animals. Other countries that you could use the names of stones. They became maybe ruby, diamond, gold, Goldberg, all these names. And, um, but eventually, in spite of having these names, 
they still became, in a way, worshippers of the chicken. Because since they didn't have land, and to rent it from a farmer, who would then give you a cow or a goat, very, very expensive, and very difficult, you know, to afford this, except there may be a few of the rich. But the only thing you could have, the only animal, in fact, you could have in your own house was a chicken. So the chicken, in a curious way, became an absolute utilitarian animal, bird, that you could keep in the, in the, in the, in the yard, in the house, and the chicken became somehow very, very much attached uh, to the Jewish race. And so they did everything with the chicken. They cooked it, they boiled it, they broiled it, they fried it, and they made this amazing chicken soup. And uh, which people say, you know, it's like Jewish penicillin, because they refined it to an extraordinary extent. And so we talk about chicken soup in the book, and my mother used to make the chicken soup. And so I had a, a kind of theory that those animals to which we become attached um, attach themselves to us in a very, very, in a way, psychological and significant ways. And I feel the chicken took over from the lion as the symbol of the Jewish race. I don't mean this in a pejorative way, but because of the ghetto life, because of the difficulties of living in that situation, they became more chicken-like. And they developed a kind of uh, a proboscis, or whatever you say, <laughs> kind of the nose, the, the, forget the proboscis. And, and the habits, in a way, of the chicken. It, it was you know, unavoidable because the chickens were living mm -hmm. with them. So they became a bit like, you know, chicken. They kept, <laughs> and why you want to? I don't know. <laughs> and this stayed at this slightly shrieking, slightly hysterical, slightly neurotic nervousness has only recently been ironed out in cities where they have lived for more than a hundred years. But when I lived in the East End as a child, they still had this kind of chicken. And I, I wondered about that. And I realized there is some, through some osmosis, that races or nationalities or groups that have an, an affiliation with certain animals take on the characteristics. Like the Red Indian that, you know, following the herd, they've had the movement of the herd. And um, other races, you can see characteristics of the food which they tended to, in a way, uh, use and not only eat, but, you know, herd to um, use for other things, you know, for the skin and hide. And in America, for many centuries, the buffalo, of course, was the, the, the animal of choice. With kind of that booming And when you, when you actually see early Western movies, the cowboys, you can detect, hey, you want to go to the bar, man? <laughs> hey, I want to get on the ranch, man. Hey. And you see John Wayne, yeah, me. And there is a tone of the buffalo, and you can hear it. And um, many people, psychiatrists, have noticed this. There was a study done 
you know, and it's very, very obvious, you know, some people love cats and they become almost more feline and they absorb it. And so if you go through various nations and look for the food of their choice, the food that they in a way absorbed or deified, you will find the element of the, of the you know, uh, the animal there within the, even the French, the French food, of course, they love the pig, le cochon. <laughs> and you know, a, a very famous Lacan psychiatrist analyzed this thing with food. And uh, he did it also about the Brits. Oh dear. What's coming? <laughs> well, they didn't have uh, an association of the um, absorption of the animal in the same way of eating the animal, but they had an incredible relationship with hunting and with dogs, particularly the middle and upper, cl upper classes. And they loved dogs. And there wasn't a house in the whole further north of London, Middle England and uh, Upper England, where the aristocrats lived, uh, there was a, a, a tremendous amount of hunting. We were the leading hunting nation almost of Europe. And every family had dogs, hunting dogs, and all the royal family all had dogs. And that's why there was such an uproar about the banning of hunting here. And you can even tell this with the, some of the upper classes when you know, they, they do resemble their dogs to a certain extent. Yeah. You know, when they, you know, they talk, it's like, I'm going down the pub, what? Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. Hey, super, what? Yeah. <laughs> they can't help it. It's, it, it's natural. Well, that's just a, a brief summation of the <laughs> kind of things, you know, that wear through privation or things that you absorb what you eat. You become what you eat. And, and as I say, for the Jewish race, it was pain. And, and they never had any gourmandizing food. Uh, there are no Jewish restaurants where they're trying new dishes, new delights, new things to kind of stimulate a jaded appetite. It's very much the same thing. And um, it's not that adventurous, but it's incredibly nourishing and it's fun food. It's simple food like corned beef or chicken soup or potato latkes and, and chopped liver and all those very, very simple basic foods. But there is a mystery also to, to some of the food. Uh, particularly I found interesting was the, the, what we call the, the bagel, mm. formerly called the bagel, because even the shape is rather Kabbalistic. And you think, what race could have invented a roll with a big hole in it? <laughs> and you think, well, maybe there was more to it. Because maybe the hole was there because they used to sell them on sticks. You see, which they do with what we call now pretzels. But with the bagel, I think that did stimulate a lot of early Jewish scientists uh, to create this tunnel where neutrons spin round and collide. And this particular scientist said, and this is actually true, as it was in uh, uh, that, what is that science book um, magazine? He New Scientist? New Scientist, yes, thank you. He said he was studying the Bible one day, and that idea came to him. So it's extraordinary how much there is of a kind of symbolism in much, much of the food. But I say some nations' food is painful. 
I think the French food is painful. Their food is based on how much pain you can make an animal suffer. So the veal, which are shut up in crates, and they love the veal, and they, they feed it milk. It it's always sees, never sees a light of day. It, it, it's awful. But after a while, there's a thing which is called conditioning. We get used to it, and, and people have veal. The same with, I can't imagine eating foie gras, for example. How you can stuff a geese until you poison its liver to give you a little bit of that flavor. And, and yet the French are not bad people, they're very decent people. But for the sake of an extra flavor or taste, some people will do anything, not be concerned with what suffering they may cause any creature, just to give you a, a slightly more, you know, flavorsome or exotic taste. And, but it's different to the Italians, and I know there are some Italians here tonight, and they probably know more than I do, but that's a very sexual food. <laughs> it almost sounds sexy, yeah. you know, it, it's almost, and it's very welcoming and very sensual. And even the names of the dishes are sexy. Like if you order a, a pasta, it's putanesca. It's like, that means whorish. <laughs> and so imagine eating a whorish dish. <laughs> It's wonderful, and they have that all through the Italian uh, cookery. A feeling of sexiness. So, <clears throat> food has a lot of association with sex. And, um, and that's probably why. And maybe we've been more utilitarian in this country in regards to food. You know, but the reason I wrote the book <laughs> is because I usually write about... It's a jumping book. I usually... <laughs> It's a lively book, mm -hmm. write about other things, but food is such a part of your life. It's such a kind of a special element in your memory. And there is also a habit of mine that if an experience has been good, I want to capture it. I don't want it to disappear. And I think maybe food through my mother had an effect on me that when you sat down, it was really special. And I perhaps became conditioned to the idea that when after I left home and would visit my ma on a Friday night, I would look forward to it because being within the family, you feel safe, you feel secure. And so the food had a very special effect. And also then <clears throat> becoming an actor, going through the performance, the thing you look for after you look forward to is the meal afterwards. It feels, oh, thank God, will I get through it? Sometimes you think, if it's a difficult play and it's the early nights, will I get through it? Will I dry? Will I manage to remember everything? Will I not look like an idiot in front of the audience? There's so many things you fear. So do you think, ah, oh, you think of the restaurant. Afterwards, peace, <laughs> sanctuary. And so I think those elements are things I wanted to keep and to refer to. <clears throat> and they, were, they are also landmarks in memory. The places you go to, the first food you have when you go to America, go to France, <coughs> the first taste of that croissant, the coffee, the, the warmth of the, the French in a restaurant welcoming you, or in an Italian restaurant making you feel uh, at ease. Welcome, that's the main thing. But very often in England, you're not really made welcome. Mm. So I, I went to a very nice restaurant, the Atrium, 
and I was a bit early, and as I went in, the waiter went, Martin say, oh, good evening, what can I do? And I said, I've got a, a table. Oh, we're, we're, we're full, we're full. I'm, I'm, later, later, I've got a table. Um, <clears throat> there's this feeling that they don't want you there. And you find that a lot. You go to a place and the head waiter comes up to you, it's like sneering, like, what are you doing in this place? <laughs> and, uh, and so that's why people go abroad. They like to go to Italy, <laughs> where they say, hey, hey, <laughs> buonasera, come and hey, come and sit there, what are you... That's an act, but it's great. It, even the act is nice. I was very struck in the book. You have a, well, one of my favorite foods. I think it's before, you don't eat much meat now, but it was steak. It was uh, yes. steak au poivre oh, yes. with haricot vert and a simple side salad. But you kind of direct your meal for maximum effect. That's what so amused me. I mean, is this something you do all the time, Stephen, when you sit down for a meal? Or did you want to make a particular ritual of this steak and vegetables and salad? It is a ritual because, <clears throat> again, all these things happened with certain events. And I was going to France to work in this film. It was, was very poorly received called Under the Cherry Moon. Mm. And Terence Stamp, was earmarked, and he was contracted to play one of the main roles. Well, they had a reading at the hotel a few nights earlier, and that's fatal, mm -hmm. because when an actor reads a film script, if they have a little part, you're sitting there for kind of minute after minute, turning the pages, seeing how small a part you have. Mm -hmm. Whereas, if you just turn up, we need you Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, then you're active, you're the lead for those few days. So, for some strange reason, he walked. He left. Mm. And so they were desperate to find an actor that would fit his clothes. <laughs> and <coughs> was similar age. Mm. And that often happens to me. <laughs> and, uh, which I don't mind, you know, mm. I'd go anywhere. Mm. And uh, so I had a call, quickly, can you go to France? And I happened to be free. So I went across, and so then the first night I stayed in Cannes, and I went to a restaurant, it was open air, and I ordered this steak. And because it was open air, because I had been swimming that day, and all the elements combined together to make it such a fantastic ritual. So having eaten it, the food is then, you know, reconstituted, and it's gone, it's lost. And yet, I always have a desire to write down and to keep it. So, maybe I just, since you mentioned it... Yes, I, please. <clears throat> yes, called Steak in Cat. I was sitting in my Brighton flat. And my agent in L.A. rang and said, jump on the plane for Cat. Terence Stamp had walked off a film that was to be directed by the famous pop singer, Prince. <laughs> I duly jumped on the plane and stepped into Terry's old clothes. Mm. Can was very nice. But as usual, I found myself alone and reflecting on a piece of filet steak. Dinner last night after a late September swim was wonderful. I found the right corner in the restaurant. One has to be comfortable. A well-located seat with a good view, but not too near anyone. I ordered for a change, filio poivre, haricot vert, and mixed salad. The tablecloth was colored in 
pastel stripes, and the head waiter deliberated in front of me. And every choice I made was, oh, parfait. Flattering me as if my judgment reflected the discriminating standard of a gourmet. I settled down with the evening, enjoying the succulent cool air washing over my tight sea-washed skin. The French bread arrived first with the vin, naturally. The pain was fresh and crisp, brown and crusty, with a very moist interior that had the flavour of sourdough. I hate the texture of baguettes when they're dry. My half bottle of 1981 Rouge of unknown vintage was uncorked and I supped it. And it was only as French wine that's bought and drunk in France and in the south of France too could be. And in the open air at that, it tasted earthy, fruity and mild with no trace of that acidy tang you get in London when you're unsure whether it's quality or cleaning fluid. <laughs> As expected, it tasted perfect, better than those expensive decanted wines of the Connaught, because you should drink wine in the country of its origin and not in swanky restaurants in New York and London. No, they must be drunk preferably in the open air with a crispy, moist French spread on the Riviera on an evening in September when your body has been washed in crystal clear waters and the night slowly turns from lavender to violet. Then it tastes. So I drank the wine of Burgundy and it slipped down very easily like liquid earth. I waited some time, allowing my patience to be tested and stretched before I received my simple dinner. Nothing fancy, drowned in painful sauces, but simple and wholesome, the obvious French dinner. At last, along came the steak, and it was parfait, sitting there, swallowed in pepper sauce and coated in some unknown ingredients, like perhaps cream and herbs, and of course peppercorns, which have been crushed into the sauce. In a separate tureen sat perfectly cooked haricot vert, just springingly lying there in heated garlic butter, and a salad tossed after careful removal of the sliced tomatoes on another plate. The salad was robustly coated in a delicious French dressing and the enlivened and glistening green sheets were deposited onto the white plate. I took my well-sharpened knife and sliced the steak. Its blood ran free, raw as a wound, soft as a kiss. Well, not so much blood since I ordered medium rare. <laughs> but delicious. The sauce in which I cradled my segment of meat had an almost malty as well as peppery taste and was also sharp, yet was cushioned by the cream from attacking one's palate with too much ferocity. I crushed it between my steel-capped molars and ground away with my incisors and swallowed it down, followed by a cascade of wine. Parfait. That's the beginning of it. I don't want to go... <clears throat> Well, that, that's the great thing about your profession, Stephen, is that you can be, you'd be flown halfway around the world to a grand hotel <coughs> and be fed and watered on somebody else's expenses. That's one of the, the perks of being an actor. That's absolutely true. You can be just sitting in your squat somewhere in Islington or Turnpike Lane. <laughs> then you get a call, you know, jump on a plane. That is one of the perks. And that's happened to me a few times. And it happened to me once when I did a play in London and they were making a film about Ronnie Biggs. 
I did a train robber in Brazil. And <clears throat> I went out there to play. And suddenly I was in Brazil. I'd never been there before. I had no idea what Rio de Janeiro was like. And it was an incredible experience. But the film was absolutely horrendous. It was, <laughs> was beyond belief. Horrific. But I did get a chance to meet <coughs> Ronnie Biggs. And he in introduced me to another dish. But just reminded me um, about the food in the theater. It, I found it interesting because um, many great writers put food into their plays. And I used to think, I still think, that the food, of course, acts as a metaphor. You, you can use it, and a clever writer will use it to suggest something else or to show something. And uh, the American writers often use food. I mean, Tennessee Williams, in, in his plays, in Streetcar, Blanche Dubois invites her lover or potential lover for, for dinner, and there's, he doesn't turn up because Stanley Kowalski has maligned her. So this dinner is so sad and it's so desperate. So she's not just waiting, they're waiting to celebrate. And I find this idea of food in drama very, very significant and also very illuminating as it's used. And we find that fewer and fewer writers have it in their plays. And yet I miss that. And it's a very, very powerful part, even in, again, Williams, um, The Glass Menagerie, the gentleman caller who comes for supper. But <clears throat> many writers have used food in a metaphoric sense. And, of course, one of the main writers, of course, is Shakespeare. Food is littered through his plays. And it's used and it's significant. Even Hamlet, when he comes back to Elsinore, and he, he uses the metaphor of how quickly his mother had remarried whilst he says the funeral baked meats did coldly furnish forth the marriage tables would I have seen my dearest foe in heaven ere I had seen that day. That's so interesting. The funeral baked meats because she married two months after that so they must have kept it in the cupboard. must have been a bit foul. But, but they were pickled. Yeah, pickled. That's right. Kosher ones. But also... He's very interesting in his discussion of food as a way of injuring your enemy. And in Titus Andronicus, Titus, in revenge for having had his children slaughtered, slaughters the children of his enemy, the Queen Tamora, and disembowels them and bakes them in a pie, makes a nice crust and serves it up. And they eat... And they, oh, it's very, very nice. They don't know what they're eating until they find out. So that, that's the most horrific idea of eating, consuming your own kind. But of course, this is not <coughs> new. It was done by uh, the Greeks in the, 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 um, <coughs> the legend of Atreus. When the brothers fought, a similar thing happened. The two brothers, one of the brothers slaughtered his brother's children, baked them in a pie to shame him. So food in plays is so very significant, and yet if I read a, a writer <coughs> and there's not a reference to it, I often feel the play lacks something. It lacks a concern about how food can be woven into the play. And even in Scottish food, Shakespeare used uh, a very, very interesting element in the Scottish food yeah. in Macbeth. 
when the wishes say, you know, making their soup. Mm. When they say, finger of birth strangled babe, ditch delivered by a drab, make the gruel thick and slab. Now, you may not realize this was the origin of the haggis. <laughs> of course. It was. Because the haggis use all uh, different elements of uh, meat and thing, put it in the stomach of uh, that. And uh, so that, that was a kind of interesting kind of element of there. And the most, one of the most terrifying scenes is when they're sitting for dinner. It couldn't have been done unless the dinner was there when Macbeth sees the ghost of Banquo. And Lady Macbeth had arranged this fantastic gourmet food for all the, for the banquet. And he, suddenly he sees the ghost. And he says, Avaunt and quit my sight! Let the earth hide thee! And so they can't eat their food. They, every time they want to eat the food, he sees the ghost again. <laughs> but Shakespeare uses food so beautifully and so eloquently. And even in Midsummer Night's Dream, when Titania asks the fairies to give food to park, to, to bottom, apricots and beautiful things. And it's so lyrical, it's so lovely. And so we don't see it. Uh, very few writers. Pinter has used it very cleverly in the birthday party about the restaurants. Mm. We sat in Fuller's and had a nice meal. Arnold Wesker, of course, chicken soup and barley. Yeah, and kitchen. again in the kitchen. Um, but we don't actually see, see very much. See a lot of drinking. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's a pity that we don't so see more. Bring food. back food. Yes. Now, you're directing a very successful production of On the Waterfront at the Pleasance Grand running at the moment. Yes. What about the kind of social bit of the theatre? I mean, uh, it's a great tradition in the theatre for company meals. Yes. For the leader of the company to take everyone out to the nearest restaurant. Yes, kind of. yes. Do you, if for you, is food a sort of communal experience as well? Because I'm very struck by the fact that your meals are always either solitary or with your closest, uh, someone you love. Uh, yes, those, yes, those particular stories are... Because, you know, then the meal perhaps becomes more significant mm. because it's just a meal. <clears throat> like having the churrascaria, this meat dish with Ronnie Biggs, or uh, being the first time I had a sushi and, and being in a deli in Los Angeles. And, um, but I have, of course, when you eat with your company, and I know there are a few of the actors here tonight, mm. they, they don't work in the evening. Mm. They... Uh, <laughs> They work at two o'clock, so they're always sober, <laughs> which is wonderful. Yes. You know, it's wonderful. Mm. But um, no, we enjoy eating together, and it's very special. Actors, when we eat together, it creates a harmony, and I think it, it imbues the group with a sense of family because I think there's nothing more intimate. I'm not acting in it, unfortunately, but there's nothing more intimate than to act with your colleagues because you have to bear yourself, your fears, your joys, uncertainties, even face their spit sometimes. It mm. is a family, and, and there's something very nice about that. And I remember being in New York with the production of Salome, and we went to the Brooklyn Academy in New York <clears throat> to do this amazing play. And Oscar Wilde can certainly write about food mm. uh, and uses it brilliantly to show his love for Salome. Herod says, oh Salome, bite a little of this fruit that I may see in its skin the mark of thy little teeth. So it's a lovely bit of flirtation using food, it's quite wonderful. But there is in um, 
Brooklyn, the, the Brooklyn Academy, <coughs> a diner called Junior's Deli. Hey. Somebody knows it. Yeah. <laughs> it was once a very, very, very <coughs> famous deli. And everybody went there. And the blacks loved it too because they served chicken, which they loved. So this is the only time that the blacks might mix with the Jews because of the food united them. But in America, as you know, there is a sense of such enormous generosity for food because I think they went through the struggles and hard times of the 20s, the last century. So the diner, they've been excelling themselves, making bigger and bigger and bigger sandwiches. So when British people go over there, they're often, oh, what's that? They're, they're amazed at the size. And you know, you can't quite get it in your mouth. But I, I knew this deli and I had been to New York before and I wanted to take the actors. I said, you've got to come to Junior's. But because we did the show at eight o'clock, it was too late because they had a bus to take us back. But one day we had a matinee <coughs> on a Saturday matinee. So here was the opportunity to go to Junior's Deli. So I raced on ahead and I ordered the corned beef sandwich and there's a big bowl of pickles and I was with my uh, assistant director waiting for the actors to get their makeup off. So along came the sandwich and I took the piece of bread off because there was spare bread in the bowl and I took out some of my corned beef. I said, look, this is too much for me. So he had some and then the actors came in. So I took some more out because I had two big halves and I've got some bread and put that there. You have that. And another actor came in and said, I don't want to eat too much because I have the show tonight. Have a bit. So he had a bit put, and then put some pickles on it. Then they had a bit. Eventually, 10 of us were eating this corned beef sandwich. <laughs> and it was phenomenal. And the waiter said, everything OK, sir? Everything fine. It was wonderful. I think they filled up, of course, with the pickles and the stuffed tomatoes and things like that. And then at the end, there was even food left over. From one sandwich. Yeah, so I thought we'd take a doggy bag. And then, of course, I'm making a parody of the Jesus mm, with the fish. Right. And mm. I realized why Jesus was able to fill the stomachs of maybe a thousand people with seven mm. fish. Because it was a form of self-hypnosis. You're so longing to go to Junior's. We were talked about it for so many months when you get to Junior's. There was such a kind of delight in being there. There was such a kind of thrill that this may be the only time you're there. And this is a holy place, almost like a temple, that they were full up before they got in. Because they were full with the idea of it. And just to have a bit was enough. Yes. Marvellous. If you ran a catering company like that, you'd be making millions. Oh, yes, yes. Anyway, I think it's high time we had our lights up and had a look at our fellow diners. And oh gosh, very distinguished indeed. Now we are standing by with some microphones. So who would like to ask a question of Stephen? Right, hand up there. Sorry, this there. Keep your hand up, please, so that we know. Hang up. Thank you for that. May I have the history of the matzo ball and its future? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know. Uh, the matzo ball really started when the chicken soup going around the table wasn't quite enough. And so matzo is a kind of very cheap ingredient 
And so you took the extras, the bits of matzah, <clears throat> you added a bit of ma the matzah meal to it, and maybe an egg, etc. And so you plonked it in the middle of the soup, and this mm. filled you up. And I think the matzah ball since then has adopted a particular and peculiar significance. Because people all over the world claim they make the best matzah ball. And it's had a significance beyond its simple kind of origins. And people say, oh, my mother makes matzo ball like you cannot believe. And so the matzo ball becomes a test, a kind of a test to see who can do it best. And it becomes like a kind of competition. And um, I think it's become part of the kind of symbolism of the race. But I think it's gradually dying out because there is gradually an immersion with the Italian. And now with chicken soup, you have pasta called lokshin or vermicelli. And so that slips down more easily because to make the mozza ball requires incredible skill so it doesn't fall apart. And few can make it, but I think there is a future perhaps and we hope that one day we see the ideal mozza ball. But I, I have not had it yet. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Now, how about any in this section? No. However, here? Yes, there we are. So here comes the mic. Here we are. Lady in the black and white. Hi. No. You're about to have your last meal. What would it be? Well, you know, this is, would be very, very difficult to, to say uh, because, you know, for your last meal, that would be, you know, even to think of food at such a time would be onerous. Um, and so I wouldn't like to think of that. But um, <coughs> if I was thinking of a last meal, probably it would be something, one of my favorite dishes, which I would make myself, which probably would be a simple bowl of borscht, which is the fruit of the earth and which has the memory of the past, which will conjure up the memories of my family and mother. And so that may be the kind of one which I would identify with my memories and past and with the emotion of the past. And it's like the blood of the earth, so maybe borscht would be the last, my last meal. Yes, here in the second row. Keep your hand up, sir, and we'll... Thank you. Yes, um, what do you think the effect has been, uh, or what influence has the uh, effect of the uh, kosher laws had on the Jewish character through the food? Um, the effect of kosher laws on, the, on Jewish character. Well, you know, I think uh, quite simply, these laws are absolutely, unbelievably advanced. You cannot believe that 3,000 years ago, laws were written saying that no animal can be eaten that consumes other animals, because this would be what they call an unkosher or trefer. Now we hear of course, with the great global organizations that feed the waste product into other animals that we've con con been contaminated, not only with bird flu, but all sorts of other horrible diseases out of greed. So I think it's quite astonishing that somebody wrote down these very, very humane laws. Also, one of the laws is you should not drink milk with meat, less by chance, and as the farms were small, when they could have farms, you consumed the milk in the meat of the mother. So that would be a kind of something so horrible 
so kind of like bestial in a sense. And so just in case, you shouldn't have milk with me. So I think some of these laws are in fact incredibly clever, incredibly smart. And also it induces in you a respect to a certain extent that not everything that moves and walks on the face of the earth is there for you to eat, to be discriminating. And um, I think that's also led to a great deal of invention in, <coughs> in Jewish food. So I think some of those laws have had the effect of keeping many people healthy <coughs> and uncontaminated. And there was a story of a group that came over from, I think it was Poland, and came by sea, and they were Jewish immigrants. And everybody on the sick on the ship was sick, except the immigrants. And they thought, aha, these are Jews, of course. They poison wells, they do all these horrible things. But they hadn't consumed the pork, which is one of the greatest kind of areas to contain residues of all sorts of bacteria and disease. So there's a great deal of sense in that. And one of the most uh, maybe powerful laws is that you cannot eat an animal that's been abused. If an animal has even a mark on it, the slaughterer, who again would be a holy man, would say this is unacceptable. So it forced people who did have animals to treat them with absolute respect. Although people made... Um, dispute that, say, look at your strange laws and cutting the throat and all that. But the basic behind it, the basic truth behind it, was to spare and to respect the animal kind. Thank you. Any other? Yes, here we are. Keep your hand up. Thank you. One of the problems of enjoying food and theatre in the same evening is often the hours of the theatre. From the audience point of view, you have to bolt down food quickly before or afterwards mm -hmm. under the steely gaze of a waiter who wants to close his restaurant. Yes. How, mm -hmm. how do you feel about... I was in Newfoundland a few years ago. I attended a dinner theatre where the first two courses were served in the theatre. The first act came on, and then at the interval, dessert with wine, etc., and then the, and the performance finished. Is that advisable from your point of view, or how do you feel about that? Well, you know, that would really take away the pleasure of people sitting together and discussing and enjoying it and having a drink. Because if you're eating during it, it's what we call like a dinner theatre, they have that in America. Because mm. the Americans, bless them, can't endure two hours of theatre without eating. <laughs> so they have what they call supper theatre. So you sit in a restaurant and you have a meal, then the act comes on, then there's an interval, you have a bit more. And that is maybe because through years of, you know, <clears throat> being indulged, having plentiful food and plentiful everything, um, they no longer have that discipline and that kind of fortitude to say, I live on language, this is my food. And you know, people used to see plays maybe two, three, four hours long, you'd sit there and not eat, not drink. You just absorb the language. People go to see Wagner, five hours of that stuff, mm. and not eat. <laughs> so I think 
we may be spoiling people too much. And although it may be good for supper theatre in the States, I think it would be bad. I think it's best to go to the, when you go to theatre, to starve yourself. Don't eat any dinner. Preferably, don't eat all day. <laughs> go hungry. Work out before you go in. Have a good sweat out. Go pure. Enter it like it's a temple. Then you'll get better theatre. And if it's not better, <laughs> So bear that in mind. Now, final question. Who's it to be? Yes, gentlemen at the front here. Oh, sorry, sir. No, here we are. You're in luck. Um, have you an opinion on nowadays, in going to the theatre or the opera, people dressing down? How do you feel about that? Did everybody hear yeah, that? people, the gentleman is asking, how does Stephen feel about people dressing down, tut tut? And you're very smartly attired tonight, if I may say so, everyone, <laughs> to go to the theatre or the opera. Well, you know, I think it's the whole thing is it's ridiculous, but mm -hmm. uh, you know, you should dress well how you want. You want to enjoy the thing, it doesn't matter. However, the dressing up is also part of the ritual of preparation, of giving, of making yourself acceptable of saying, I want to respect what I'm seeing. I want to give something. So I'm going to shave, I'm going to look good, I'm going to dress up and be elegant in a way that makes attention in the audience, that gives a kind of vibration. When I used to see these early pictures of the Opera House and drawings of Aubrey Beardsley, everybody in black and white, looking elegant, stiff, starched, it's a preparation, it's a kind of a sacrifice of some element of your time as the performance is a sacrifice. And so I think it's all right. I see too many people go to theatres and, and they look like slobs. You know, they, they go in there in their trainers and baggy, smelly track pants. Like mine. <laughs> but I'm not, I'm not, you know, in the audience. <laughs> But I think it's become too casual. I think, yes, dress up, give something back, be elegant. And I think that's, that's not bad. But if you're not, I mean, I don't think that's important. I think enjoy the play and wear something relaxed. Because if you fall asleep and you've got a stiff collar on, it's very painful, it chafes your neck. And a lot of people do fall asleep in the theatre. Yes, indeed. No one's fallen asleep tonight, I hope. Anyway, ladies and gentlemen, the second course will be served shortly in the signing tent next door to us, which is out those doors, left and left again, or right and right again. And Stephen will be signing copies of My Life in Food. Well, I hope we've whetted your appetite, because I think My Life in Food is a feast of sensual and, uh, what's the other word, sensual experiences. So come and join us then. Ladies and gentlemen, it's been a very special event tonight, so please join me in thanking Stephen Burkhoff. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thanks.